Welcome to Fireside Chats with Erin. I'm Erin Gowerlich, the president of the Canada Grains Council and your host for this podcast. It's been a year since we recorded our last season, and now that I'm settled into my new role with the Canada Grains Council, I want to use this platform to explore grain sector priorities that reflect the Council's work here at home and around the world. Together, we will explore issues and ideas with policymakers and industry influencers. And today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Mary Ellen Smith. Mary Ellen became the Minister Counselor in the USDA's Office of Agricultural Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa in July of this year. Prior to arriving in Canada, Mary Ellen was the Deputy Administrator for Foreign Affairs with responsibility for managing the FAS's Foreign Service Corps and the foreign operations in the USDA's 98 overseas offices. She previously served tours in Moscow, The Hague, Brussels. In these roles, she led market promotion activities and trade policy initiatives in the European Union, Sweden, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Iceland, and Russia. She also served as a director at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, Executive Office of the President. Mary Ellen is a fifth-generation Californian with a bachelor's degree in agricultural economics from the University of California, Davis, and has a master's degree in business administration. After graduation, she joined the Foreign Agriculture Service and was commissioned as a Foreign Service Officer. She and her husband, Matthew, have two daughters, Kayla and Sydney. Mary Ellen, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. I'm so thrilled to be here, Erin. It's been wonderful coming to Canada. It's been great connecting with all the industry. In fact, getting to talk to the industry and producers is by far my favorite part of the job. Well, and I understand, too, you had an opportunity to do that. I know you and I met fairly early on in your tenure. You've met with a number of sector stakeholders since then. And I think maybe you've even had an opportunity yet to get out to a few farms. Or is that something you're looking forward to doing in the spring? I've gotten out to a few farms. I've gotten out to a few conferences. And I have to say the conference that I was with you and PEI was up there with one of my favorites. I felt like it was a fantastic reunion with the old friends there from the EU and the new personalities I'm just getting to know from Canada. And there were some of my favorite people there from USDA as well, USDA past and present. I really want to thank the Canada's Federation of Agriculture. You know, they're a small but mighty team, but they really went to all lengths to make that an absolutely fantastic event. It was, wasn't it? I I was there with you. It was the first time that I had attended uh, the North America EU Agriculture Conference. And so was thrilled to know that it was in Canada this year in PEI. And like you, these are old friends for you, but for me, many new friends, because in my 15 years in this sector, this is the first time that I've had an opportunity to interact with farmers from from the US, Mexico, and, and the European Union. So I, I appreciate that we had an opportunity to connect there. We talked about with our counterparts from, from across North America and the EU, a whole host of issues, some quite controversial in nature. Um, but I was really struck by how much Canadian farmers have in common with their American, Mexican and, and European counterparts. And I wondered, um, what were some of your takeaways from our time together in PEI? You know, I I had kind of a, the same feeling. I have been to many of these conferences, particularly, you know, with the European Union. And, you know, aside from the wonderful personalities and the dedication to the profession, it's rare, very rare, that they uh, that we all align on so many issues. And, and I did see a common theme 
throughout Mm -hmm. that conference where we were coming together. You know, I'm used to more sparring at these events where there's a little bit more controversy. What I saw there was, you know, the shared pride and I guess uh, passion that we always see from producers, but an, an undercurrent of distress. Um, and distress over the same thing. There were, you know, a, a few years back, um, I may have heard some resistance to to climate change. And I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I heard like sustainability being embraced and celebrated. But that common undercurrent was a fear of overregulation in the climate arena. You know, having ambitious targets set by maybe entities that don't know agriculture and that stringent requirements could actually threaten the economic viability of agriculture and the potential misalignment between policies, between what Canada does versus the EU versus the United States could threaten trade. Um, There was also a resounding support for for participating in the conversation on, on climate smart practices, but an uncertainty. There was an uncertainty among the participants on how exactly to move forward. You know, as, as I mentioned, it is so powerful, extremely powerful when we have producers from four major exporters agreeing. I, I, I would I would hope that maybe the next step from that could be if they could get out together in front of some of the regulations and they could explain what they can do to participate in this conversation, I would love nothing more than if this group could show the world how they can contribute to reducing carbon emissions before they're told what they need to do. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I felt the exact same thing. It was really quite, quite powerful. And I expect that you've interacted with a number of these organizations in the past because you've worked in a very impressive variety of important jurisdictions throughout your career with the USDA you know, agriculture sectors in, in Canada and the U.S. are, are export-oriented, and so international policies like predictable open access to international markets and science-based trade policies are, are cornerstones, not only to a profitable agriculture sector, but I would argue more importantly uh, and increasingly uh, global food security. And and I, I'm reflecting on a conversation that you may have been a part of Um, early on in the conference in PEI when reference was made to the addition of the words food sovereignty, for example, that have recently been added to France and Italy's agriculture ministries. And we can look more recently at uh, the Mexican decrees on on GMO corn, for example, as some specific examples of the way in which the conversation is changing. So I'd like to get your take on this. You know, has the global conversation around the important role that trade and science-based policies, um, has that evolved during your tenure? And if so, what are some of the challenges and opportunities facing the sector today? You know, Erin, that's a really fun question. Um, Because I've worked in this industry, trade now, for almost 30 years. And, uh, you know, started doing it before we had laptops and and, and cell phones. So, no, dinosaurs weren't quite roaming the earth, although the technology (laughs) might seem like it was. Mm -hmm. And the trade environment was was so different. It was so different back then. You know, back then, our biggest concern was dirty terrification. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's where countries would kind of pad their tariffs prior to negotiating reductions. 
And then, you know, we had some proliferation of trade agreements in addition to the WTO tariff reductions. So dirty tariffication kind of went away. Um, but as tariffs came down, it seemed that, you know, out of the ashes, we started seeing more sanitary and phytosanitary barriers. Um, actually, it just wasn't an increase. There was a skyrocket, a load of them coming up all different directions from different countries. Some thought to offset the access that was creating as tariffs went down. Um, and that's when the importance of scientific international standards really rose to the forefront of the discussion. Um, you know, as it did in all conversations about managing risk, we can't have zero risk. There was that period where we were hearing things about the precautionary principle or multifunctionality, but any scientist can tell you that risk, zero risk is an impossibility, right? But when you started seeing things like pesticides coming under scrutiny, technology in different sectors, you know, I don't understand it. I don't understand why in agriculture, technology gets sometimes looked at as the villain. It's so critical to all other sectors, right? Transportation, health, AI. But in agriculture, it's, it's a little suspect. Um, it seems the temptation to introduce non technical voices into the food safety discussion has emerged. And it's not the case in other sectors. And now, now we're even seeing the conversation evolve to another element. And that goes back to what we were kind of saying with the, the climate and the environment um, increasingly becoming part of the agricultural trade dialogue. And I like to say that because there was actually a time in my career when I couldn't talk about, uh, you know, environment at all. But I'm also torn as, is this a potential trade barrier or is it an opportunity? Um, you know, either way, we are very much in the midst of how this discussion is evolving. And how is this discussion evolving now in light of some of the recent events? I mean, when you when you think about when countries convene in these international forums to discuss the challenges, you know, related to climate change, to what extent are governments now acknowledging the impact that some of these agri-environmental policies might be having on production and the unprecedented rates of global food insecurity? You know, I I, I, I might invite you to comment on a U.S.-led initiative in, in this space, which I think is the right initiative, and it was presented at the right time, and I think it's it's the right response, and that's the Sustainable Productivity Growth Coalition. But I, I would invite your comments on the ways in which you see this, this conversation evolving, if at all, and the role that the coalition might play. Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy and I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, it is a presidential priority right now, uh, protecting the climate and the environment. Our Secretary of Agriculture is absolutely embracing it and leading in a number of environmental forums. Um, it's interesting because we are deviating a little bit in our approaches. Um, I want to say, I'm going to brag on my country for a minute, or maybe two or three. Um, we have some ambitious targets in the United States as well. We've been out there saying we want to achieve net zero greenhouse gases by 2050. I'm going to say it again, because I mean, we've heard that number a lot, but the United States aims to achieve net zero by 2050. Uh, but we're approaching it a little bit differently, maybe than some other countries. I'll use Canada, for example, because I've heard like Canada wants to achieve net zero as well. But 
they are approaching it in different sectors. Um, we're not requiring agriculture be net zero, but we're looking at it more holistically. And I think it's because not all sectors are created equally. So you have to have a little bit of flexibility to have it you know, even out over time. And um, one of the things that the United States has done that I'm so excited about is I kind of said in the beginning, we're not all sure how we're going to achieve these targets. We all want to, but how are we going to do it? And what we've done in the U.S. is we have put out a request for climate smart projects. And um, we just we just did this last year and we had uh, about two point eight billion dollars that we were going to invest in these projects. Well, what did we get? We got 18 billion in proposals. And we ended up giving out all of that money. Um, and we're hoping to showcase some of, of those very important projects. Um, then, of course, you know, we have been very, very active in some of the international forums, as, as you suggested. Um, we, we, you know, we, we have the climate uh, smart initiatives out there, the Sustainable Productivity for Growth and Coalition. It was launched in 2021. Uh, there's also Aim for Climate, which strives to accelerate investments in climate smart agriculture simply you know like i was explaining that we are doing um when i first came back to washington it was 2018 it was very very uh different in and that was not long ago i was in charge of that time when i first came back of the international organization's office and at that time that time usda sent one person one person to the UN's conference on climate. Now we send teams led by the secretary. And uh, that's that's how how serious we are taking our leadership role in, in some of these forums. You know, my, my personal hope on how this will evolve is that we know we can't, no one country can do this on their own. You can't fix a global problem one country at a time, you need to go under the umbrellas of these international organizations. Maybe you can set targets at a macro level, but how each country achieves their targets needs to be tailored to what and how they can do it based on their own agricultural economies and challenges. You know, I like to use the image that there are many ways you can get to grandmother's house. You don't all have to take the same route. You can bike or fly or drive. Heck, we're in Canada. You can probably ski, right? There's no one right right way just as long as you get there in time for dinner. The environment discussion, same way. There's water mitigation. There's integrated pest management, digesters, cover crops, no-till. No one right way. But this is what's important as we all go about our different ways of achieving these goals. And I'm going to say it slowly because I really think this is the key, is in order to offer this kind of flexibility, we need to have a common way of measuring, monitoring, and verifying. I think that is going to be the, the framework for how we get recognition for all of the different economies that we're going to be able to achieve. And then, of course, there has to be some way of giving back to those that go through the effort to uh, institute these systems. And that can either be through like, carbon credits or se securing a premium for climate, climate smart content. 
Um, but again, it has to go back to how are we going to measure, monitor, and verify these systems. I couldn't agree more, I think. And that was one of my takeaways, too, from the from the, the conference experience in PEI was that where many of us were all working towards the same goals, but when you consider a farming operation in Canada by comparison to the U.S., Mexico, and Europe, all very different, needing to take mm -hmm. different approaches. But when I look at the relationship between Canada and the U.S., and I appreciate, thank you very much for citing um, the many initiatives that are underway in the United States, showing tremendous leadership in this space. How can we work better together, the two countries? We are very like-minded with respect to our approach to trade and science-based policy. So how can we take that like-minded approach, our common interests, and how can the two countries work better together to influence international policy in the right direction? You know, thankfully, the U.S. and, and Canada are aligned in, in many, many facets of agriculture, including their, as you mentioned, their approach to trade and technology. I do then want to caution that I do see some hints where we could be diverging on some really critical tools in that toolbox. You know, I, I see some different approaches at times to MRLs, potentially packaging. Um, our markets are so integrated, Erin. Um, Canada is our biggest, you know, it, I'm sorry, we're Canada's biggest market and they're our second biggest market behind only China. Um, and so we really need each other and we need to have similar policies and we need to continue sharing a common voice in the international arena. And I think we've been doing that. Um, you know, one of my favorite parts of working overseas is, is partnering with like-minded countries. Um, and it's always been diplomats from Canada. Um, so it's so excited for me to be like here now trying to come together with strategies on how we can approach these very important questions in, our, in the international fora. Um, and so it is making sure I think that we share some of the, the common, I keep going back to measurement tools, but, you know, getting aligned as we go into these international foras, as we're both figuring out, we've identified it's really important that we do have climate smart policies. It's really important that we get a premium for them. We need to attack food waste. So I love it when I hear our higher up politicians getting together and talking about these exciting things. And it's as we decide how we're going to implement them, that is so very important. Making sure our policies are synced and motivating progress by raising the bar together. And it doesn't work if one goes up faster or farther in a different way. We have to go and approach these international organizations in tandem. You know, one painful lesson that COVID taught us was really the critical support, the importance of a, a reliable supply chain. Um, and different approaches between Canada and the U.S., well, it threatens that. Um, and going into international organizations, maybe with a different ideas on some of these things, whether it's MRL or packaging, um, I think threatens it as well. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here in the nation's capital with that energy and enthusiasm and a vision, um, I think, towards greater collaboration on some of these issues. I appreciate that. You mentioned in your in your remarks on areas where the two countries may be moving in different directions, and it's certainly been an issue here for the agriculture sector in Canada, and that is around the establishment or determination of maximum residue limits. And so my question to you would be, to what extent, in your experience, have U.S. officials been engaging with their Canadian counterparts on pesticide policies, including the decisions around the determinations of maximum residue limits? 
Yeah, you know, Erin, it's, it's, it's interesting because that's one of the issues that no matter where I've served has been heavily debated. But I think luckily, even in some of the markets that are the most skeptical at the end of the day, they really do understand that in order for farmers to feed a growing population, we need to embrace applications and technologies which promote and improve crop quality and yield. And pesticides can be beneficial in that part of the equation. Sure, we need prudent use. It's always going to be a necessary consideration. Um, And both the United States and Canada have very rigorous science-based approaches to evaluating the safety of pesticides. A science-based approach um, to evaluating the health and environmental risks continues to be encouraged and promoted by the United States. We closely follow Canada's decisions on pesticide policies. The United States and the um, EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency, regularly engages with Canada through Canada's Pest Risk Management Regulatory Agency. And these issues that, and we address these issues at a technical level, I think because we do appreciate how important it is that we address these issues in a similar way. Um, We work with Canada through the Regulatory Cooperation Council and more broadly through the North American Trilateral Technical Working Group. I mean, these are, you know, very technical organizations, but so, so important, you know, maintaining a strong scientific approach to evaluating and regulating pesticides is imperative to maintaining global agricultural trade and encouraging food security. You know, you asked me some questions earlier on about about food security, and we're talking about a population by 2050 that's going to be 9.3 billion people. Um, We cannot in any way not use technology um, because there's no other way to address some of the issues and challenges that are coming with climate without technology, without pesticides. We can't tie one hand of the farmer behind its back. We need to arm them um, because food security, as we've seen in these recent times with COVID and supply chains and the war with Ukraine, it's very, very real. I want to ask you about one of these challenges specifically in the global landscape. Um, Canada Grains Council members were very pleased to see our government step up in support of the U.S.'s formal request for the formation of a dispute resolution panel under Chapter 31 of the USMCA, or CUSMA, in response to Mexico's agricultural biotechnology measures, which was the recent uh, decree uh, or decision to ban the import of of GM corn for use in, in dough and tortillas intended for human consumption. Can you comment on this file, including the impact that the Mexican degree, decree might have on corn producers and in the U.S., and then more broadly, to the extent to which you, sir, you think this might serve as a dangerous precedent and why it's important for governments' international obligations to remain science-based given trade agreements and international standards? Sure. USMCA um, is one of my favorite things to talk about. Maybe not our disputes under USMCA, But, you know, USMCA, or as you said, otherwise known as CUSMA, um, is so vitally important to North America's agricultural trading relationship. And it's going to continue to strengthen the rural economies on in every state and every province. Uh, Our trilateral agreement was really one of its first of its kind and undeniably one of the most successful. So honoring its commitments is really a, a cornerstone to the success, right? You know, respecting may, maybe, maybe I should say actually adhering, 
adhering to the principles, you know, such as the sanitary and phytosanitary chapter, which is the one that you're referring to, um, is included in CA, not only to safeguard tri-rat, our tri-rat, trilateral relationship, um, but it has impacts well beyond its borders, as you, and you kind of alluded to that. Um, and this is why, when we were negotiating, this is a very, very important agreement that we included dispute settlement. We knew, we knew we weren't always going to agree. And this is one of those times, Erin. Um, you know, I like to reflect on what our ambassador says when he talks about the USMCA. He likes to like he likes to think of it as we're all a family. And think about your family. At least I know in my family, we have disagreements. Yeah, yeah, we do. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that we're dysfunctional and or we're not harmonious. It means that we're human. And the question is, so how do you resolve these disagreements? Well, with USMCA and Kuzma, you know, look at it. The three of us can't even agree what to call it, right? Um, but we have value and we value each other's as partners. And we tend to use the trade dispute resolution as a mechanism to help us with those disputes in a manner that enables us to have a healthy ongoing relationship and grow and, and come together even as we go through some of these difficult times. So, you know, Canada is going to stand by our side as we talk about the importance of technology. It's one of our most impactful tools at increasing yields. I recently heard, this is a fun statistic, that without crop protection and plant breeding innovations like biotech, Farmers would need 44% more land um, than they do today. So, so we're going to defend this technology um, in, in our disagreement and in the international forum. And we are so grateful that Canada has joined us in pushing back on some of these measures. Um, so so now, now it's time to put forward our arguments and, and let the process play out in the way that the three of us, Canada, United States, and Mexico designed it too. Excellent, thank you. I wanna ask you a question that I asked Sonny Purdue when he was a guest on our show last year. It's clear like uh, it's clear that like Canada, the US certainly has its share of, of citizens and activists who don't understand or accept the important role that some of the innovation that you're talking about plays in our sector. How can governments, in your view, reconcile the activist pressures that they're facing with the interest in remaining science-based? You know, that has been a conversation that has followed me throughout my career. And, it, and, and, it, and it's, it's difficult, right? The dynamic of civil society and food, it's interesting and it's important. Um, what it comes down to is, is people need choice. The conflicts are going to arise when... As it does, actually, if you think about most of the world's most political questions and controversies, it arises when people try to impose their own values on others and maybe limit choice. And that's what we need to avoid as we go forward in this conversation. Um, part two of that formula for disaster, I'll call it, is failure to communicate. You know, science is extremely sophisticated and not always easily understood by all. It's, it's really our government's mission and duty to keep us safe. And it somewhat comes down to the degree of trust we put in our government to do that. Um, we need to trust the scientists and we need to provide choice. The, the problem really arises when the minority becomes more vocal and hence 
more influential and actually tries to limit our choice. I've had conversations with government officials, not in your country and not in mine, that will actually admit the vocal minorities have swayed food safety policies. And Erin, that is so dangerous. We need to listen. We need to engage. We need to educate. We need to debate. They don't, we don't always need to agree. We need to make sure folks understand there are bigger issues out there, global hunger, food security, climate at the risk and the balance of these debates. Most politicians and citizens protesting the uses of some of these, these critical tools don't have a deep understanding or appreciation for the time, effort, and dedication that goes into producing our food. Couldn't agree more. I've been quite specific, uh, Mary Ellen, in my line of questioning for you. So I want to close with two questions for you. The first is really giving you the opportunity to uh, a couple of open end questions for you to respond to some of the opportunities and challenges facing Canada and the U.S. And so on that specifically, what opportunities do you see for the U.S. and Canada and our collaboration specifically on non-tariff trade barriers to trade that are affecting grain exports? Well, you know, luckily in the grain sector, it's not overly fraught with non-tariff trade barriers like we see in some of the other commodities. This is a sector where the foundation of all agricultural successes is based on our basic building block of being able to produce those grains and oil seeds. So many countries, so many sectors are dependent on our ability to continue to produce a reliable, consistent food supply and, and, you know, in these sectors. Um, the biggest threat is probably, you know, we keep going back to the MRLs and it's because it's such an important, um, the maximum residue limits, it's such it's such an important uh, element of food production and the t- there's a temptation to politicize them. You know, that is probably the biggest threat is, is limiting our ability to access and move forward in food using the new science that's coming. We've seen the past science and we've seen how it's been demonized. Can we move forward with new innovations in a way that they're embraced rather than threatened? You know, we've seen uh, the U.S. and Canada continue to advocate for these kind of advancements um, and and really gaining support in in, in such a critical sector. Mary Ellen, I have a personal interest in the in the topic of leadership, having studied it as part of my my graduate degree, and I think that increasingly. The unprecedented challenges that we're facing uh, require unprecedented leadership. So I want to close all of my conversations by asking my guests to weigh in on the topic. My question for you is this. You, you served as the deputy administrator for foreign affairs, whose job it was to manage the foreign agriculture services in the USDA's 98 overseas offices. You were based in Washington at the time. And so, uh, the team around the world reported in to you, you know, depending on where in the world they were, I would imagine this, you know, it's running 24 seven. Tell me a bit about what that experience was like for you, both personally and professionally. You know, Erin, it's interesting because, uh, you know, that was a a big responsibility. Um, But no matter what level you, you are leading in, I think that there is some, common threads you know that was carrying the the responsibility of the health and safety for 500 people but not only 500 people but their families um and as i reflect back on it though 
there's some some things about leadership that I think are, are pretty consistent. And and one is as, as people ascend to that level, you know, there's some people that get excited and they're just, oh, I'm here now. I'm in charge. Things are going to be done my way. Well, that's the biggest misconception. Leadership doesn't mean that you're in charge, um, but rather that you're responsible for those in your charge. Um, you know, that could be your staff. If you're a politician, it could be your constituents. If you're in business, it can be your associations and community level. It can be your parish or your club. You're responsible for those people that look up to you. And in order to serve them, you have to really understand the importance of communication because everyone is coming from different backgrounds raised with different beliefs and formulated from different experiences. So one of the things that took me a while to realize is that the lens that I'm looking at things can be very, very different from these the others. And that the way people receive and react to information can be very different. What might be normal to someone might be extreme for someone else. You only know if you ask and you communicate and people are only going to follow you if they think you understand them and if there's mutual trust and you get that by offering transparency and you know as i speak through these things it's the same with getting through an international negotiation you only make those breakthroughs with your partners if they trust you uh you know whether it's an international organization, an office, or even a household. Mutual understanding is essential to finding any solution. Um, you know, and uh, unfortunately, in, in this conversation, I feel like I've been on transmit rather than receive. Um, I see my job here as, as hearing and understanding the Canadian perspective. Um, so I can help craft solutions that benefit both of our countries. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very very privileged to be here serving in our in, with our top agricultural ally, our top partner, and our friend. And Erin, I want to thank you for for giving me a forum here to explain my perspective. And I look forward to the next three to possibly four years of of understanding the Canadian one. I'm so pleased and excited to have the opportunity to introduce you to the stakeholders that you haven't already yet had the opportunity to meet in our sector across the country. So thank you very much for joining us for today's conversation. It was a good one. Absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you found this episode as thought-provoking and inspiring as I did. Remember, these fireside chats with Aaron are monthly, so mark your calendars. We will be back in November with another great conversation. You can connect with us through Twitter at Canada Grains Council to stay up to date on all of the work that we are doing. Stay connected with us for more engaging conversations that delve into the heart of the grain industry. You can catch us on your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Just search for Fireside Chats with Erin and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Until next time.